0: This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On Friday, September 12th, 2008, 29-year-old Caroline Stenvall was on the way to a job interview at the Ice Hotel in Jukkasjärvi in the northern parts of Sweden. It was a five-hour drive from her home in Piteå and she was driving alone but she never arrived at her destination. Her car was found the next day on a rest stop called Stenbron about one and a half hours before she would have reached the ice hotel. Her coat and her mobile phone was lying on the passenger seat but Caroline was nowhere to be found. Welcome to episode 18 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. I've been having a bad cold for over two weeks and colds are, as you probably can guess, a podcaster's worst nightmare. But now I think my voice is almost back to normal. But if it cracks up, I apologize in advance. Before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know that we are having a little contest on True Crime Sweden's Facebook page. You can find it at facebook.com slash truecrimesweden. All you have to do is like the page and then go to the post where the contest is and comment with five emojis while you listen to True Crime Sweden. The winner will be announced in the next episode and the price is a real wooden dollar horse that's enough of the business and it's time to get over to caroline's case this episode is researched and written by johanna uldstol friberg thank you for great work as always johanna this is the story of 29 year old caroline stenvall and her disappearance in 2008. But let us start with a little background on Caroline. The summer of 2008, Caroline spent at home with her parents in Piteå, in the northern parts of Sweden. She had knee surgery in the spring of 2008 and wanted the pampering and care of her parents while recovering from the surgery. Caroline has been described by her family as positive and full of energy. Her hair was light brown, slightly curly, and her eyes were blue. She liked to help other people and was very engaged in her local church, supporting those who had not been as fortunate as her in their lives. After a long summer with an injured knee, Caroline was looking forward to spending time outdoors again. She loved nature and she liked to challenge herself with nature experiences. Two years previous, she rode her bicycle from the point where Sweden begins in the north, Trieriksröset, three country Cairn, to the southernmost point of Sweden, Smygehuk. The point where she started her bike ride the three-country Cairn, is a place where Sweden, Norway and Finland meet. You can stand in a point and be in all three countries at the same time. The distance she covered on her bike ride was 3,000 kilometers or 1,800 miles and it took her about 14 days. She traveled through rain and sunshine and did detours to experience even more of the beautiful countryside in Sweden. The year before that, she walked the full distance of the trail of Kungsleden all alone. Kungsleden, or the King's Trail, is a hiking trail in northern Sweden, approximately 440 kilometers or 270 miles long. It goes between Abisko in the north and Hemmavan in the south. It passes through, near the southern end, the Vindel Mountains Nature Reserve, one of the largest protected areas in Europe. After these two life-altering experiences, Caroline decided that she wanted to make outdoor living her profession. She applied to the two-year program at the Outdoor Academy in Finland. The Outdoor Academy is an educational concept based on the Nordic outdoor tradition. They offer full-time training programs for adults who want to pursue a career in the outdoors as a tour guide. Caroline enrolled at the Academy and quickly found many friends who shared her passion for nature. One of her school friends, Patrick, later became her boyfriend. In January of 2007, they became a couple and they lived together at school. Patrick graduated the same year and moved to Skåne in the south of Sweden. Caroline had one more year left of school and she finished school in the summer of 2008 and then went back to her parent's house for the knee surgery. The couple now struggled to find time to see each other as often as they wanted. Piteå and Skåne are 1300 kilometers or 800 miles apart. A distance you don't easily travel back and forth. As soon as Caroline was back on her feet on crutches in August, she went to see Patrick in Skåne. And they both agreed that the long-distance relationship should only be a temporary solution. Their plan was to try to find work in the same region and move in together again. In September of 2008, Caroline was fully recovered and she went to the PTO office of the Swedish Public Employment Service. It is a Swedish government agency Organized under the Ministry of Employment, mainly responsible for the Public Employment Service in Sweden. The agency helps facilitate meetings between employers and job seekers. Especially those who are long-term unemployed and have particular difficulties in finding work. Caroline wanted a job within the tourist industry which is largely funded by tax money which made the public employment service a good place to start. She quickly found a job opening that would be perfect for her at the Ice Hotel in Jukkasjärvi. The Ice Hotel is a hotel that is rebuilt each year from snow and ice and it's located about a five-hour drive from Piteå where Caroline's parents lived The ice hotel is amazing and I'm going to tell you more about it in the Swedish fun fact session in the end of the podcast. But now back to the case. To Caroline, this job opportunity was a dream come true. She was very excited about the job opening and to her surprise, she was immediately called in for an interview. Patrick also found a job opening in a nearby town. And if all went well, they would soon be living together again. Caroline started planning for a road trip to the ice hotel in Jokasjärvi. She was going to leave on Friday, have her interview on Saturday and drive back to Piteå later that night. She asked her sister if she wanted to come along on the trip. The long drive would be more fun with company. The Friday night was going to be spent with some friends who lived in Kiruna, near Jukkasjärvi, and it would have been fun for the two sisters to go together. But Caroline's sister couldn't get a babysitter with such short notice, so Caroline prepared to drive alone. Midday Friday, September 12th, Caroline turned the key on her blue Ford Focus And drove to a nearby gas station before she continued north. After about one and a half hours she starts feeling a little hungry and she makes a stop at another gas station in Töre where she gets a coke and a chicken sandwich. She calls her dad and he tells her to drive safely and not too fast. Caroline replies that she never speeds, and that he shouldn't be worried about her. She continues on the road for another two and a half hours, and then she needs to go to the bathroom. She stops at the well-known Stenbron rest stop, or Stone Bridge rest stop, if you translate the name. She parked her car, left her cell phone and her coat, on the seat next to her and she locked the door. Exactly what happens to Caroline after she leaves her car is not established to this day. At three fifty-five p.m. Caroline's phone started ringing but she can't hear it because the phone is locked inside her car and she is at this point somewhere else. Another call is made at 4.40 p.m. And then another call at 5.22 p.m. Caroline's family, her boyfriend, and the friends who she was going to stay with that night, they call her repeatedly all through the night, but without a response. But none of them contact the others at this point. On Saturday morning, the friends Caroline was going to stay with call Patrick, and says that Caroline never showed up last night. And at 10.42 a.m. on Saturday morning, he calls the police to report her missing. At the same time, the friends she was going to stay with that night take their car and start driving towards Pitio, where she came from, hoping to find Caroline or her car on the way. The police checked all the hospitals to make sure she hadn't been in an accident, but no one had seen her. Later that day, with the help of modern technology, the police tracked Caroline's cell phone, triangulation of the phone led the police to the Stonebridge rest stop. It was about four in the afternoon on Saturday when the police arrived at the rest stop. The female police officer who was sent to the scene stepped out of her car at the rest stop and immediately saw the blue Ford Focus that belonged to Caroline. She looked inside the car but could only see a coat, a cell phone, and an open bag of chips on the passenger seat. But no Caroline. She took a piece of paper and a pen and wrote a message on the piece of paper she was holding. It said, Hi, call the police on number... We are looking for you. Best regards, the police of Gällivare. The police officer didn't bring tape, so she had to improvise with a band-aid to get the paper attached to the car window. Caroline never read the note, though. By the time the police found her car, she was already dead. The police searched the rest stop with dogs, and they sent helicopters to scan the nearby woods. They had divers go into the river next to the rest stop, but Caroline was gone. It looked as if she had parked her car, locked it and disappeared from the face of the earth. From the moment she was reported missing, there were four policemen working full-time on finding her. The police reached out to the public and asked as many as possible to help look for her. One of the many organizations that supported the police was Hemvärnet, the Home Guard, National Security Forces. That is a military reserve force of the Swedish Armed Forces. It was established in 1940, during World War II. The majority of the soldiers maintain a civilian job while serving in the army part-time. During time of peace, they help out with the natural disasters and when there is a need to mobilize large amounts of people for people in distress. There was a chance Caroline was still alive And the police wanted to make sure that they did all they could to find her. When the search reached its peak, 70 police officers were actively working on the case. Despite all of these efforts, they couldn't find Caroline. Many theories were tried and dismissed. One was connected to a hitchhiker who a witness said had a suspicious behavior. Maybe Caroline picked him up and he had something to do with her disappearance. Another theory was that Caroline had been abducted by a truck driver. Since the rest stop was a popular place for truck drivers passing by the rest stop on the way to Kirna. None of these theories led them closer to finding Caroline, though. Now, let's go back a little bit in time. At the same time as Caroline was on her way to the ice hotel in Jukkasjärvi to interview for her dream job. A man called Tony Aldén had taken a day off work to go hunting. Tony worked in a storehouse of the Kirna plant in the Swedish mining company LKAB. He was 51 years old and lived with his wife and their two children in a house near Gällivare. He also had a 25-year-old son from a previous marriage. Gällivare is located about 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles from the rest stop where Caroline went missing. Just like many Swedes in September, Tony took some time off work to be part of the älgjakt, the annual moose hunt. A little side note here about the annual moose hunt in Sweden. Because of the large population of moose in Sweden the number must be controlled. There are about 400,000 moose in the woods in the summertime in Sweden and even though they don't harm people they may be in car accidents and they cause damage to the trees. So every year, about 270,000 hunters go out and shoot an average of 80,000 moose. A government agency decides how many moose can be killed each year and in each region. And when the hunters have reached their quota, they have to stop hunting. Only landowners can decide who gets to hunt for moose in their woods, which makes this an exception to the Allemansrätt, if you remember the fun fact about Sweden in episode 12. Hunting is only allowed if you are granted hunting rights to that piece of land. Anyway. Tony Aldén was a part of one of these hunter groups that came together every fall to hunt moose. What no one knew about Tony was the fact that he was a raging alcoholic. He had been abusing alcohol for many years and had tried to quit several times but always failed. It was a secret he had kept hidden from everyone including his wife and family. Only months before the murder, he confessed to his wife that he had a drinking problem. His intention was to be able to stop drinking when he had come clean to her, but it only made matters worse. In the weeks before the tragedy, Tony was drinking all the time. When he was at home, he would go out in his garage to drink, and at work he drank in the bathroom. He went to the liquor store twice a week, and each time he bought four balls of vodka. On the morning of Friday, September 12, 2008, at about 6 o'clock, the hunters group gathered in a cabin in the woods where they were going to hunt that day. After downing the first ball of the day, he drove his black Audi, towing a trailer filled with chopped wood for the heating of the cabin. He unloaded the wood and joined the rest of the group when they started hunting. After a couple of hours, he went back to his car and messaged the hunting group leader, Ingvar Nordström, that he had fallen into a large pool of water and that he needed to call it a day. Ingvar later stated to the police that he thought it was very weird and out of character for Tony to cut a hunting day short. A couple of hours later on Friday afternoon Tony parked his car and trailer at the rest stop Stenbron to throw away some bags of trash. He arrived shortly after Caroline did The two had never met before and it was a coincidence that they both parked there on that day. But that coincidence ended up with Caroline disappearing and Tony leaving the rest stop without being seen by anyone. On Saturday afternoon, an elderly couple, Kurt and Annette Weidenen were going fishing in a creek near another rest stop in the area called the 58. They parked their car and noticed a large pool of blood by the side of the gravel road leading to the water. Kut later said to reporters, I thought the blood came from an animal, but when we got home and watched the news about missing Caroline, We put two and two together. On Sunday morning Kurt and Annette went back to the place where they spotted the blood to see if it was still there. The pool was now small but they could still see it very clearly. When they got back home again they decided to call the police to report what they had seen. The police took their report and put a note in the file with all the other observations that people were calling in at that time. Because so many people were involved in the search for missing Caroline, hundreds of tips came in and the police had to deal with them one at a time. It took them 16 days to finally get to Kurt and Annette's observation near the 58th and they sent a patrol car with a search dog to investigate. By that time all signs of blood were gone but there was a pile of gravel and a black rubber glove on the side of the road together with 16 empty cores from many different types of rifles. When they dug into the pile some blood appeared and they realized that they were onto something. The search crew started scanning the area for clues on where Caroline might be. They quickly spotted a black mat that belonged in the trunk of a car. The mat was made out of rubber and it was laying a short distance into the woods. When they came closer, they saw blood on the mat. This was the piece of evidence that would later solve the case. The police sent the mat for analysis, and it turned out it could only originate from two different types of Audi cars. Thanks to the vehicle registration database, the investigators found that there were 83 registered owners of such cars in the city of Yelivara. They immediately started calling them one by one to have them come in for questioning. Number three on the list of 83 vehicle owners was Tony Aldén. After an initial phone call they had him come to the station for a statement He answered all of their questions without hesitation or doubt. When asked about a missing mat in his car, he said it had been ruined when he prepared for the moose hunt, so he had tossed it in a fire pit near the cabin where they were hunting. Tony offered the police to join him to go look at the fire pit where the mat was burned. The detective, Jon Niva, who was leading the investigation, thought that was a good idea. When they reached the police car, Neva's co-worker got into the driver's seat. Tony sat in the front passenger seat, and John Neva, the investigator, placed himself in the back. Neva, who is now retired, remembers the drive up to the cabin when talking to reporters afterwards he says Tony seemed very calm and reasonable he did not say or do anything to raise suspicion but from where I was sitting in the back I could see a vein on his neck pumping heavily I counted the beats and realized that his heart was going at a rate of 120 beats per minute That was when I knew we had our guy. We did not know how or what had happened to Caroline, but we knew Tony was involved somehow. While the police took Tony Alden to the cabin, the forensic people investigated his car. They found traces of blood and human hair in the trunk of his Audi. When Tony and the police got back to the station, they placed him under arrest and charged him with the kidnapping and murder of Caroline Stenvall. When he was faced with these charges, he looked at them very surprisingly. He even said, are you kidding me? When told his rights to have a defense attorney support him through the questioning. He really put up an innocent act for the police. Numerous hearings were held with Tony after he was taken into custody. He kept denying the allegations and had no explanations to why there was DNA of Caroline in his car. After a couple of days of saying nothing, he eventually fell apart and tried to commit suicide in his cell with a sharp object. Thankfully, a guard found him before he could harm himself fatally. Despite his suicide attempt, Tony still wouldn't say anything to the police. It wasn't until two days later when they told him that his oldest son was about to be taken in for questioning regarding Caroline's case. Then he finally started to open up. His son didn't have an alibi for Friday afternoon and talking about questioning him was what finally made Tony give up and start talking. He started to tell the police about this accident he was in. He said he accidentally drove too close to Caroline when he parked his car in the parking lot at the rest stop that Friday. He didn't think he hit her but when he got out of the car She came up to him and yelled at him. She was very upset and they got into an argument. He then pushed her and she fell and hit her head on the trailer. When he walked up to her, laying on the ground, he saw blood coming out of her mouth and he assumed that she was dead. So he panicked and put her in the trunk of the car. He then drove off as fast as he could, still very confused about what he just had done. After driving around for some time, he parked his car by another rest stop nearby, the 58, and he opened the trunk to get rid of the body. He placed her on the ground and then realized that Caroline wasn't dead and that she seemed to be in severe pain. So he took out his hunting rifle and shot her once in the back and once in the head while she was laying on the gravel road. This, he states to the police, he did out of mercy. Then he quickly put her body back in the trunk and drove off. He then said he doesn't remember why or where. But he stopped after some time and hid her body in the woods. A couple of days later, he returned to the scene. He felt sorry for Caroline and he didn't want her to lay there all alone. So he picked her up, put her in the back of the trunk again and drove off to another place further away and set fire to her. He did not have any explanation to why he needed to burn her body. After hearing this story, the police asked Tony to tell them where he had placed Caroline's body. They showed him a map of the area and after some hesitation he pointed out a couple of locations where he thought he had left her. The police sent a patrol out to look for her, but they couldn't find her. Another interrogation was held with Tony and he gave them another location where she actually was found. Her body was very damaged after almost six weeks in the woods and Tony probably wanted to obstruct the investigation as much as possible by not giving them the correct place right away. The autopsy showed that Caroline had been hit with a blunt object multiple times in the head and in the neck, causing severe damage to her spine and her skull. She had been shot twice, once in the head and once in the back, probably while she was standing up, judging from the angle of the bullets. Almost nothing about the forensic evidence corroborated Tony's story, except maybe the fact that he burned her body after she was dead. The police who found her body in the woods reported that Caroline's bra was hanging from a tree at the scene, and that only Caroline's lower body, including her genitals, were burned. Tony explained this by saying he didn't have the courage to burn her face. A witness who was walking his dog claimed that he heard the sound of two gunshots at 11 p.m. on the Friday when Caroline went missing. The sound came from the 58 rest stop area. If that is true, it means that Tony held Caroline capture for almost eight hours before he killed her. The investigation also showed that during the weeks between the disappearance and the time that Tony was arrested, he put a lot of effort into trying to hide his crime. First, he went back to where he had killed Caroline, put a pile of dirt and gravel to cover the blood placed a rubber glove and 16 empty cores to confuse the detectives. The glove belonged to one of his co-workers and had his DNA on it. The empty cores were believed to have been collected at a nearby firing range because they came from multiple weapons. The investigator, John Niva, later says to reporters, Tony was obviously not a normal human being. He was abusing alcohol and guarded that secret with all what he was worth. It is my conclusion that Caroline probably noticed him driving drunk and approached him at the rest stop. He got mad and wanted to protect himself from being caught drunk driving. And his solution was to kill the only witness. That was the investigator's conclusion. But my mind goes more to a sexual assault because of the bra hanging from the tree and her genitals being burned. But I guess we will never know. On March 19, 2009, Tony was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder, He kept to his story about how it all was an accident and that he killed her without touching her sexually. The evidence and the autopsy told another story and the court believed that one to be the true one. When assessed by the psychiatrist to determine whether he could go to prison or not they found no signs of mental illness. However, he did show signs of having two personality disorders beside his alcohol abuse. Those were antisocial personality disorder, which means a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others, lack of empathy, bloated self-image, manipulative and impulsive behavior, And the other disorder he has is narcissistic personality disorder, a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, and a perceived or real lack of empathy. After the murder, he is believed to have been suffering from a maladaptive stress reaction with heavy episodes of anxiety. All of these conditions do not excuse his actions. But since he won't tell the family the truth about why he killed Caroline, this might serve as somewhat of an explanation. Perhaps he couldn't cope with a woman telling him what a lousy driver he was, and that he shouldn't be driving when he had been drinking. And under the influence of alcohol, together with the fact that he had a rifle in his car, it ended in the worst possible way. Caroline was a 29-year-old girl who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And what he did to her destroyed not only her boyfriends and her family's lives, but also the lives of Tony's own wife and children. And he still sticks to the story about her falling and hurting herself. Thank you so much for listening to episode 18 of True Crime Sweden. And thank you again Johanna for the research and writing of Caroline's story. Before we get into this episode's fun fact, I want to remind you to go to Facebook and search for True Crime Sweden and enter the contest for a real wooden dollar horse. You just have to like the True Crime Sweden page and comment on the contest post with five emojis that explains why you listen to True Crime Sweden. If you want to reach me, you can reach me by emailing me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or by finding me on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And I want to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Natalie B, Sarah, Jonathan, and the Minds of Madness podcast. Thank you all for your support. It means so much to me. If you haven't listened to the Minds of Madness podcast yet, make sure you check them out. You will recognize Tyler's voice because he is the one doing my disclaimer in the beginning of the episode. Thank you also to the following people who gave me five star reviews on iTunes from the US thanks to RID LSS six five nine, Scully Mama, Jesse the Outlaw, Houston Brit and Peril M thirty six, and from Australia thanks to D Lind Q. And from Lithuania thank you to Eva Makarevice and from Canada thank you to cthitctigt and I'm sorry if I butchered your handle that probably means something but I don't know how to pronounce it sorry but thank you all so much you are amazing But now over to this week's fun fact about Sweden. That today is going to be about the amazing ice hotel in Jukkasjärvi. The place where Caroline was heading when she was kidnapped and killed. Jukkasjärvi is located in the far north of Sweden. And in 1990 the ice hotel opened for the very first time. This is a hotel completely built out of snow and ice and is completely rebuilt each year. It's open for guests between December and April each year. When the ice hotel is built up it contains a bar, a church, a main hall, a reception area and about a hundred rooms for the guests. The hotel also hosts an ice restaurant. All the furniture in the hotel is sculpted blocks of ice in the form of a chair, a bed, a table, and so on. You're even served drinks in glasses made out of ice. The thick walls, the floors, the ceilings are made out of ice. Even the beds. The fittings and the decorations are carved from ice. No two rooms are the same. To be able to sleep in a bed made out of ice. They are bedded with fur from reindeers. And you are also given a polar tested sleeping bag. There is no heating in the rooms of course. And the bedroom temperatures are constantly around minus 5 degrees Celsius, or about 23 degrees Fahrenheit. There is no plumbing at the hotel, but there is a sauna that is run on the premises of the Ice Hotel, with a hot tub that is also outdoors. If you want to read more and see some pictures, you can go to www.icehotel.com. Or follow them on Instagram at Ice Hotel Sweden. If you ever visit Sweden and don't have the time to travel north to visit the Ice Hotel, or like me, you don't want to sleep in an ice bed, there is now also an ice bar in Stockholm. When you enter the bar, you are given a thick coat to keep you warm. The drinks are served in glasses made out of ice, the bar is made out of ice, as well as the furniture. It's well worth a visit. I can also mention that the Ice Hotel in Jukkasjärvi is on the Time Magazine's list of world's greatest places in 2018. That's something, huh? Thank you so much for listening. And I hope to see you again next time. Goodbye! Hey, Door!